You're tuned in to the Coach Onamdi Show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. Earlier this week, we held our latest Coach in Your Community event via Zoom. The topic was how the local restaurant industry has fared during the pandemic and what the future looks like. This is the final broadcast in our Kojo Connect series, this month focused on arts, culture, and food. WAMU's arts and culture reporter Michaela Lafrac assisted me by moderating and sharing the questions from the attendees. And I just want to mention this is Michaela's last week with WAMU. We wish her well up north. We will miss her. Reminder, today's show is pre-taped, so we won't be taking calls during the broadcast. For this final Kojo Connects event, we're discussing the ways the local restaurant industry has been affected by the pandemic, what changes might be permanent, and what the region's restaurant landscape might look like in the future. Joining us now to discuss this is Jose Andres, restaurateur and founder of the World Central Kitchen. Jose Andres, welcome, and how are you doing, my friend? Well, uh, now that I am with you, Coyo, I feel amazingly well because, my friend, I miss you and Every time I listen to your voice, it's kind of a voice that reminds me that I belong to Washington, D.C., and I thank you. I thank you for that. How has the pandemic affected the restaurant industry? What has the past year been like, starting with your restaurants? Well, it's been obviously one of the most difficult moments uh, of our life. I still remember around on the 13th, 14th of March of 2020, that I was announcing on, on a video that I was closing my restaurants in front of Haleo, the first restaurant I opened in 1993. So imagine, uh, we've been all trying to survive, obviously, taking care of our families, but more important at the same time, taking care of our teams who are like family, taking care of our restaurants, trying to, trying to forecast a future that, Quite frankly, nobody could imagine because every week was changing. So here we are, and we can say, uh, I, I look forward for the future of the restaurant industry, but still I'm very worried that over the next few months, many, many, many restaurants in D.C. and across America and around the world, we're going to have to be there supporting them because it still is going to be a few weeks, few months, very hard to have. You were just 23 years old when you opened Haleo Restaurant. Is this period now the most difficult period you've experienced in the industry since you first got started? Uh, totally. I mean, we are talking about people that their whole livelihoods uh, very much destroyed, people that had to close the restaurants because they couldn't negotiate uh, the, the lease, uh, the rent with their landlord or with the banks. And and quite frankly, uh, we're talking about hundreds of thousands uh, of restaurants across the United States alone. So this has been without a doubt. Uh, everybody always kind of dreams to be part of a movie. Unfortunately, this is the time that every single human in Washington, in America, in planet Earth is being part of a movie. Hopefully, we're going to get ahead together. Together, I think we're going to come out stronger but it's been a very long road. It's been very dark months. The organization you founded, World Central Kitchen, cooks, packages, and delivers meals to communities in need wherever there is need. In Haiti after the earthquake, Puerto Rico after the hurricane, and most recently in Texas after a winter storm brought record cold temperatures and power outages. To date, you have provided over 36 million meals in 400 cities. How have you shifted operations this past year during the pandemic? Well, we saw very early on, told you that this was going to be a major pandemic. I began following this in 1999 on December 31st. We began kind of thinking, what happened if this is the pandemic that everybody was talking, President Obama, Bill Gates, and since we began serving people in the cruise ship in Yokohama at the beginning of February, and then we followed doing the same with the second cruise ship with COVID cases in Oakland, California, in that moment, we never stopped. So how, how we shifted, we are an emergency organization. We are there in the emergency. At one moment, we were doing 300,000 meals a day, feeding hospitals, homeless shelters, first responders, you name it. And at the same time, Coyote. 
We had fires in California and Colorado, uh, hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, Lake Charles. We had hurricanes in Central America, uh, Colombia, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, Venezuela, where we have a humanitarian crisis, the explosion in Beirut, Lebanon, the, the Indonesia with another earthquake happening. At the end of the day, my friend, on top of COVID-19, we had all these other, because climate change situations, that the men and women of World Central Kitchen were there. And I'm so proud of all of them because actually we've not been obviously the only ones. We are only the very tiny tip of the iceberg. What gives me joy and hope is that there's been so many Americans and especially here in DC that in the darkest hour of our communities, many people decided to step, step in. And in our case, uh, a plate of food was the beginning of hope of a better tomorrow. World Central Kitchen has also partnered with restaurants to provide jobs for laid-off staff and meals for the wider community. What has that effort looked like here in the Washington region? Listen, we had many, many, many restaurants on top of the very big restaurant we opened at the National Stadium that was helping us feed people in Virginia, in Maryland. Uh, and in the district, we had many, many restaurants, beloved by all of us. Many of them are friends from Colada Shop with Daniela, Compass Rose, Anju, and Pizza with Michael Lastoria. We're talking about so many that is unfair used to name a few because everybody could be doing something else, stay home in the comfort, protecting their business alone. But World Central Kitchen, we saw this very early. When I closed my restaurants, I said they were becoming community kitchens. We created the health code. We created the circles to make sure that people waiting outside could keep the six feet distance that was safe at the time. And what we saw was this, who better than restaurants to feed Americans in the middle of a crisis? At the end of the day, we had over 3,000 restaurants only across America, on top of Spain and the other countries, doing what we do best, serving our communities in the good times, but making sure that we were going to be there serving our communities in the bad times. I'm proud the World Central Kitchen, the money we received for so many people, many of them Washingtonians, we were able to channel that money to go to the people that needed the most, which was restaurants, to pay rent, to pay salaries, to pay the farmers, to keep everything running and in the process, solve the hunger problem. I'm very proud of what every man and woman joining our efforts, but joining every other efforts of feeding fellow Americans. I'm so proud of all of them because they were there in a very difficult moment. Jose, many people out there still are not quite comfortable dining out. How do you recommend that such people support local restaurants and their staff? Listen, the creativity of the food community that goes beyond restaurants, we need to understand involves everybody. We've seen everybody, restaurants, farmers, uh, fish, fish ladies, uh, oyster guys, we, we've seen them adapting to the situation while doing takeout, while doing to-go orders, different ways that you could be ordering and be in the comfort of your home and knowing that you could be supporting the restaurants uh, if you were not feeling safe going out and helping the economy somehow to keep moving. I don't think many, many of restaurants in this pandemic has gotten uh, rich. I think everybody's been trying used to survive another day, to keep uh, jobs open, to keep feeding people, very often feeding people in need at the process. So I think the creativity that we've seen, I think is something we're going to see going on in 2021 and beyond. Let's talk about you. How did you first fall in love with cooking, Jose? And when did you know this would not be just your passion, but your career? Uh, I don't want to sound very uh, romanticism, but I always mention about, if we talk about who is feeding the world, it's not boys like me, it's not cooks like me. Our women around the world feeding, especially in the poor communities. Nothing that the love of a woman, the love of a mother. And me, I wish uh, that there was conscious when probably my mom fed me for first time, uh, bringing me close to her and giving me her love and feeding me. And I think that's why we all love, love so much to share a plate of food with others, to believe in longer tables, not higher walls. I do believe that love that our mother gives us the first time feeding us is what keeps going through. We're unconscious, but 
it's inside our brain somewhere. That's why we all love to have good times sharing, loving food, and enjoying company of family and friends and a very long table where happiness wins the day. You opened your first Spanish tapas restaurant, Haleo, you mentioned in 1993. Haleo is still there, of course, but you've added many more culinary ventures since then. What was it like to venture into the restaurant business at that time? And what did that part of D.C. look like then? <laughs> that part of D.C. looked very, very, very empty. We only had kind of the Shakespeare Theater, but with many other people mm. next door, obviously, I remember the Inset Club. But when I arrived in D.C., D.C. was amazing. We, we had Gianluigi Paladin, and we had Roberto's Donas, and we, we, and, and we had Nora Pujon, and, and we had Robert Kincaid, and Jeff Boomer. I mean, so many amazing chef men and women that already made that our city vibrant. When I came as a young boy and I opened Haleo, I was very lucky as a head chef to have who became a very good teacher and a good friend and passion, an amazing woman that taught me a lot what I know, if anything, about organization. Uh, um, uh, you know where I realized, Koyo? That at the end of the day, I am who I am. Thanks to all the people that invested their time in making me better. This is the America we want. This is the communities we want, where we understand that it's not about I, the person, but we, the people, where everybody is who they are, thanks to the people that we have around us. And we need to celebrate that because we have each other. And in this darkest hour, I feel that we have each other. We need to keep this philosophy going forward. You were something of a pioneer back then on the local food scene. How has the restaurant landscape changed in the past couple of decades here in our region before this pandemic hit? Well, you're going to have uh, uh, Tom Sitzeman and, and others <laughs> that are much bigger experts on analyzing that. But let me put it this way. Washington, D.C., I'm very proud because it keeps reinventing itself. New generations keep coming up. Uh, 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 chefs, uh, Afro-American chefs, Latino chefs that before probably they couldn't even think about owning or being uh, at the top. We see that they are some of the most creative chefs doing amazing things and taking their know-how to TV and to other cities around America and around the globe. Uh, this, to me, without a doubt, uh, it's been 10 amazing years, and this only tells me that the next 10 years, with new communities opening up, raising up, new amazing moments where uh, um, every community seems to have a new restaurant, uh, like my friend from Bass Boys and Poets, Andy Shalal, <laughs> opening in Anacostia, but nobody else will dare to open in Anacostia. People don't want our pity. People want our respect. And I love that, in this case, Andy Shalal showed me how to give respect to a community by opening a restaurant. The next 10 years, I, I think they're going to be even better. Use wait and see. When you joined us on this show back in 2018 and a lifetime ago and spoke about the value of small businesses, the value that small businesses bring to a neighborhood, what effect can a restaurant or a bar have on a community? Listen, I mentioned before, restaurants, we are about longer tables. We all have moments in a restaurant. We know all the owners, or the chefs, or the managers, or the bartenders, or the bus boys, or the waiters, or the hostess. We all are proud of a restaurant, well in our city, well in our neighborhood. We love to take friends. In my case, you, can you believe right now that I see people that they are 30 years old, that they told me that the first anything they ate was in one of my restaurants. This is something that's very, I cannot believe I've been almost 30 years in D.C., but this only tells you that Restaurants are anchors of community in ways we cannot even imagine. Restaurants don't only feed our body, but they feed our soul. Restaurants are part of the DNA of Washington. They're part of the DNA of our country. That's why America is a melting pot. It's been a way that we know more about the world. One restaurant at a time, because every restaurant tells a story. Every dish tells a story. And the more important, tells the story of the people behind every one of those dishes. Restaurants are here to stay. It's going to still be hard. But I see that the future, the light at the end of the tunnel, we all see. And restaurants are going to have to be supported because they need to be part of putting America back to work, back to be who we were. 
I'm glad you said you know it's going to be hard because restaurants are notoriously tough businesses to run with very thin profit margins. Tell us about some of the factors that go into making it. How much is luck? How much is timing? How much is location? Is there a formula for success? I think uh, Winston Churchill said it best, that success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. No one is going to deny to me that food people of America, that is beyond restaurants, as I said before, is everybody that makes part of the food business, from the storytellers, book writers, farmers, everybody, obviously cooks and chefs and, and owners and metrodies and sommeliers, everybody. But restaurants, yes, are tough. If this pandemic is showing all of us, probably, is that we need to be all better at the numbers. But is bigger than this, is making sure that the new American dream is making sure, in this case, that the people that feed America are able to feed themselves with dignity. When we are talking even about the minimum wage, should not even be about the minimum wage, should be about the living wage. We need to make sure that the people that feed America can feed themselves. People don't want our pity. They want our respect. Let's make sure that we start making decisions that we can give respect to people belonging to the city we all love, to the country we all love, and that the restaurant food community can be part of that change going forward. What advice, Jose, would you give to aspiring restaurateurs who have seen what this past year has done to the industry and are now feeling scared to death about getting into the business? Well, uh, to be a little bit scared to be into any business is okay because this allows you to prepare better, stronger. You don't take anything for granted. But I think my answer is the same I gave you use two minutes ago. Success is going to be going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. And my friends, celebrate the failures because they are part of the learning. I had many in my life and probably have few meal. I will have few, few others ahead. But Learn from your mistakes, take charge of them, use those failures to build and rebuild better and stronger and keep the enthusiasm flowing. And eventually, we will all succeed. You and I are both immigrants who call Washington home. I remember going to your swearing-in by Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and that was a wonderful event. But how did you find belonging here in the Washington region. I'll tell you how it was for me. After I had been doing broadcasting for a while and hosting shows, it became apparent to me that this community welcomed me, that this community, for reasons that I'm still not sure I understand, appreciated what I do, and as a result, extended a welcoming hand to me. And that's what caused me to call Washington home, because this is where I feel at home, even though I was not born here. How has it been for you, Jose? Washington, D.C. is more important in this case in my life than I could ever uh, explain or ever I will get back everything I received. I had so many people that were making me successful even when I was a very bad. Um, Anne Cashion, she knew I was I maybe a great Spanish cook. I was the worst running a kitchen when I was 23 years old. Uh, um, uh, but there she was trying to make me better, besting on me. My partners, Roberto Alvarez, uh, Rob Wilder, that 30 years later, here we are still together. Many obviously investors, but then employees, employees that leave, but then they come back to say hi, uh, even if they move to another country or another state. Uh, and, and they come back because our restaurants, they are not my restaurants. They are the restaurants of everybody. Everybody needs to take ownership. Uh, 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 me, I took ownership when I was not the owner of my restaurants. That gives you that feeling that you have all these people that believe in the same dream you have, that, that slowly you began creating this amazing network of friends, of people that sometimes kind of you forgot, but then all of a sudden one day you see them and, oh my God, this was the same customer, the same guest was coming every single day, especially the days we were empty with nobody in the restaurant. And here is coming back 20 years later. At the end of the day, Washington DC for me has been this place where I met my wife, where I had my three daughters born at Sibley Hospital. Meeting my wife was everything because I am, anything I am is because my wife always kept me uh, straight and in a, in a line. And the many friends that 
I have in DC today that for me right now, I know where I come from. I come from Spain. You see my accent, everybody knows it. But I also know where I belong. As I always say, I am a proud Washingtonian with an accent. And I hope I'll be 30 more years a proud Washingtonian with a little better accent. Just like me, we mentioned World Central Kitchen, the nonprofit aid organization you started more than a decade ago. Why and how did you launch a food aid organization? I'm going to try to make it quick, but I have to give the thanks and every, every second to Robert Eggert, our food fighter, food hero, who founded over 35 years ago, DC Central Kitchen. I was very young when I joined DC Central Kitchen. Uh, I was peeling potatoes next to ex-convicts and, 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 and homeless people that they had fascinating stories, only we were willing to listen and to learn from them too. Robert Eggert showed us that the plate of food is the beginning of a better tomorrow of giving hope to people and give them, in this case, the training we were giving them to find them jobs in the community. Robert told me that seems philanthropy is about the redemption of the giver when philanthropy should be about the liberation of the receiver. That beautiful phrase is pasted on my forefront. And that's when I began seeing that food, yes, can be that change. And I've been part of this central kitchen until today, but World Central Kitchen, I saw many times that we were not responding to the needs in emergencies. Katrina, we saw thousands of Americans in the Superdome waiting for food and water when a Superdome is nothing else than a stadium, a gigantic arena, which to me is a big restaurant that entertains with uh, sports and musicians. I wish I was there and I didn't. When Haiti happened, I said, I'm not going to be regretting anymore my lack of action. I'm going to try to put in place everything I learned in D.C. And I began feeding in Haiti. I began learning. And who was going to tell me that the slowly, slowly uh, World Central Kitchen is already reaching 40 million meals in 2020 alone and that we are able to respond to multiple catastrophic events in different countries all over the globe. Robert Egger was a frequent guest on this show and a friend of the show when he was with D.C. Central Kitchen before he moved out to the West Coast, and I would always run into him running in Rock Creek Park. So he's moved on, but what is next for you, Jose Andres? What is next to me? Me, I know that uh, I want to make sure my restaurant is open. I want to make sure that I help my city to rebuild, to go back trying to help many of the people that used to work with us and now they have their own restaurants, trying to make sure they'll do okay, trying to give wisdom, if anything, when I need myself, but when people ask, trying to give them a word or two of wisdom to tell everybody that don't worry, we are all broke. That means nobody's broke. So let's let's keep working hard. And, and for me, I want to keep, you know, uh, the family man I am next to my wife, if she doesn't quit on me, um, putting my restaurants running and making sure that World Central Kitchen will be what should be an organization that always will be there next to Americans and other communities around the world when there is destruction. Remember, Missing Soldier's Office of Clara Barton in Washington, D.C. is across the street from Haleo, right across that woman, single-handed, a nurse, like my mom was, was able to take care of the wounded soldiers in the Civil War. This tells me and tells anybody listening to us that all we have something inside us that we can put at the service of helping others, of helping our community. We need only to look inside. Me is just cooking. is the only thing I know. And to make sure that nobody will be hungry, especially after an emergency. Jose Andres is restaurateur and founder of the World Central Kitchen. Jose, I can't wait until I can see you at a Washington Wizards game again. I cannot <laughs> wait when we celebrate that the Wizards won the NBA. Yes, I'll be with you for that celebration. And thank you so much for joining us. I love you, Coyo. Joining us now is Ruth Tam, journalist and host of WAMU's food and culture podcast, This City. Ruth Tam, thank you for joining us. Hey, Kojo. It's so good to be here with you. Also joining us is Tom Sietzema, food critic at The Washington Post. Tom Sietzema, always a pleasure. Hey, good to be back. Thank you for having me. And Julie Verratti is Associate Administrator of Field Operations for the Small Business Administration and co-founder of Denizens Brewing Company. Julie Verratti, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Ruth Tam, I'll start with you. How has this pandemic year 
change the restaurant landscape in the Washington region? There's so many ways to, to answer that question because there have been a lot of changes of different scales, but I, I really feel like the idea of public space, uh, the idea of a, you know, a third space that's not your home or work, uh, that idea for us has changed potentially for forever. Um, it's changed how restaurants are designed, how we define service, how we think of comfort and approach the idea of a luxurious dining out experience. And it's weird to kind of see these, these changes manifest in some weirdly specific ways. I think about how we used to be able to go to bars and grab drinks with friends or a date. And now, you know, instead of doing being able to do that for a period of time, you could go to a bar and pick up a little pouch of a cocktail and, and walk home with it. Or, you know, you couldn't dine indoors for a while, um, but you could park yourself in a table literally on the street. So, you know, lots of changes from the big picture way we're thinking about dining to the small and scrappy ways that people are making that happen now. Ruth, of those changes, which do you think will be permanent? And are there any silver linings? Well, one of the changes that I didn't bring up is, is maybe the ways that restaurants and diners are thinking about ways to better take care of people in the service industry. Um, I saw restaurants kind of come up with their own merch or implement service charges to, to do better by their workers during these really uncertain times. And I think that's maybe leading to what I think will be a silver lining that people will be thinking more about where their money is going and be conscious of that to be asking questions about what is really a fair wage for restaurant workers and what do we consider to be safe conditions. Um, I really do hope that conversations like that continue after the pandemic and that it's not just happening on an individual level, but um, being a conversation that's happened by lawmakers and out in the public. And it's something that we all kind of Julie Ferrati, the big news this past week has been the passage of the $1.9 trillion economic stimulus bill known as the American Rescue Plan Act. How are you feeling about this and about what it will do for small businesses? I'm very excited about it, not just on a personal level, but uh, proud of the Biden-Harris administration. You know, just looking at uh, the programs that are in this package, uh, we're finally at a place where real help is going to be coming to the restaurant industry. Right now, the teams at, at the SBA and, uh, you know, congratulations to administrator, administrator Isabel Guzman, who just got confirmed today. Um, we've got teams standing up these programs as we speak. Um, so we can try to get funds into the hands of business owners who desperately need it right now. What will this mean for restaurants in particular? And do you see issues with some of these smaller establishments accessing that funding, as we've heard in the past? I'm glad you brought that up because part of the law, uh, there's a requirement for set-asides for the smallest of the small, uh, as well as priority periods for some of the, the small businesses and restaurants that are owned, you know, women-owned, minority-owned, veteran-owned as well. And specifically restaurants, uh, the mom and pops that are, you know, annual revenues of less than $500,000, there's a specific set-aside for them. Equity is absolutely one of the number one priorities for the Biden-Harris administration and using that lens in all of the programs that are being implemented. So this will definitely be a high focus for us when standing up these programs. Is there also local government funding available to restaurants? You have to check with your local jurisdictions. I know that um, where I live and where when I was operating my business in Maryland, there were lots of Lots of programs, uh, both in Montgomery County, Prince George's, as well as in the state. I know the D.C. has set up a lot of programs. Uh, I know that Virginia has some programs as well in terms of localities, but definitely reach out to uh, local resources and ask because people want to help. Glad you mentioned running your own place because you're known to many of us as the owner and operator of Denizen's Brewing Company. But as we said, you were recently appointed to a new role in the Biden administration. So what are you working on? I am working on helping stand up the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. Um, that's one program. Uh, as the Associate Administrator of the Office of Field Operations, my main job now is to oversee the 68 field offices across the country. And our sole purpose is to help small businesses start, grow, expand, as well as recover at this point. And so what I am very excited about being in this position is that I am bringing a sense of empathy and Understanding at a very visceral and human level, the absolute terror this past year has been for small business owner operators, especially in the restaurant and retail space. And so every day that I am going into work, and I just started week three, uh, so 
uh, but I've hit the ground running. Um, that that is singularly my focus is is what I'm doing right now going to bring relief as fast as possible to the many small business owners out there as well as their staff um, to make sure that America can get back on its feet. I am very heartened by the people at the Small Business Administration and the work that they're doing to bring relief to people. And I'm help is on its way. That's all That's all I can say. Tom Seatsum, a food critic at the Washington Post. You've been a food critic here for over 20 years and you've seen the restaurant landscape change dramatically during that time. But this past year must defy comparison, as Jose Andres was saying. What do you see as some of the biggest losses to the Washington region's restaurant scene? Well, individually, I mean, I could go on and on about this, but Poca Madre, the upscale Mexican restaurant from Victor Albasu, Johnny's Half Shell and Adams Morgan, you know, that had been around in different incarnations all over the city for over 20 years, too. And I got to chart its course during that time. Um, but that was a real, true, beloved neighborhood restaurant that I'm I'm very sorry to see uh, close uh, very early in the pandemic. Momofuku, you know, downtown, David Chang's restaurant, I think that was very important. You, you know, just loss after loss, but, but um, you, you know, the list could go on. And, and I think of all of them, you know, there's also the loss of hospitality, too. We look at individual restaurants and we think, you know, uh, we don't have the service, we don't have the ambiance. Every night we're sort of looking at the same four walls in our homes or wherever we happen to be eating dinner. And that is what I miss. And I think that's what a lot of other people miss too. What I'm very impressed by, however, especially here in Washington, is the, the way in which so many restaurants have taken packaging and other little things to heart. You know, so no, you don't have a server waiting on you or a beautiful dining room or an interesting dining room, but you might get a little note from the chef or signed by the kitchen staff. You might be asked, um, hey, do you want some music with dinner? Here's a curated playlist and little things like that or a little free ice cream or a little free treat like you might have gotten uh, in the before times in a restaurant. And so restaurants have been really creative. You know, I'm just uh, on a weekly basis. I'm I'm really surprised and delighted by uh, by the subjects I cover. Michaela Lafranc, we have a question. Yes, we do. Ashley in Alexandria asks: With the increase in takeout during the pandemic, which restaurants in the DMB have been leaders in finding creative alternatives to single-use plastic? <laughs> Tom Sitsuma, can you respond to that? Oh, wow. Well, I can think of a few places like Oyster Oyster in Shaw that have uh, compostable, uh, you, you know, uh, eco-friendly containers. Um, I believe the utensils are made out of, um, the utensils themselves are made out of bamboo, you know, um, and I really support this. I actually did a story where I, where we took a photograph of a month's worth of takeout packaging, and it horrifies me. I know, too, that there are places like Food Not Bombs that collect certain uh, containers, too, that they can distribute to their audience. And I, I really applaud that. I think it's we all need to be mindful of that. The big thing is, I think, anytime you want something from a restaurant, you need to ask. And if enough people ask for something, restaurants are apt to respond and respond in a positive way. So if you are concerned about these things, Call, have your neighbors call, have your friends call. Hey, we want uh, eco-friendly uh, packaging or for, for our takeout. We want to be good stewards. I think all of us want to be good stewards. Michaela, you have another question specifically for Tom? I do. Mary in D.C. wants to know how soon Tom will feel comfortable eating inside a restaurant. I'm chomping at the bit. But you know what? I take my cues from people like uh, Anthony Fauci because – he is, um, I mean, he's the expert on this, right? And as far as I know, he's still doing just takeout. He's not even eating outside. I am eating outside, but the large majority of my food that I'm reviewing right now is either I pick it up or I have it dropped off. The nice weather was really a boon because I was able to get outside of my house and review things again. But um, I also encourage, and I hope this sticks around um, after the pandemic, um, cold weather dining. I'm all about it. I'm also from Minnesota, so that helps. But I love seeing so many people eating outside um, at 30, 35 degrees this year. And I hope that's something that carries on next year when we're more people are vaccinated and we're somewhat clear of the coronavirus. 
Tom Seitzem is hoping that becomes a thing in Washington because why? He's from Minnesota. That's why. Uh, Julie Ferrati, putting on your denizen's hat for a moment and looking back at this pandemic year, what were the particular struggles and triumphs for your small business? The first thing was just sort of the initial pivot uh, after the first day of just sort of, again, I use the word terror, uh, just, just not knowing, you know, your entire your entire world is just flipped on its head. Uh, what you had in your business plan, you can just throw that directly out the window um, and trying to figure out, okay, you know, and for us, uh, Denizens is, is a brewery. So we had all this beer in kegs and all this beer in, in cans and bottles. And how are we going to sell this? Because <laughs> we can't have people there. Um, and so very quickly pivoted to the direct-to-consumer home delivery um, and so started that on March 15th, and the company has been doing home deliveries ever since uh, throughout uh, parts of Maryland and parts of D.C. as well. So that that was a triumph, knowing like, oh, wow, we can, we can figure this out. Um, that, and that, again, I was really heartened by the support of the community at that time. I think one of the biggest struggles, and this is something that business owners have, have felt throughout this throughout this year, and again, particularly in the restaurant industry, because of the amount of shutdowns that we've had and restrictions is uh, having to furlough staff was probably one of the worst days of my life when we had to do that in, uh, in March. Um, luckily we were able to bring back most people. Um, some people didn't want to come back. They either switched careers or just didn't want to, but um, that, that was horrible. Um, and so this is again, why I think it's so important that the government steps in um, and created things like the Paycheck Protection Program, which has, in the, in the American Rescue Plan, we've added another over $7 billion into that program. Um, on top of that, having the Restaurant Revitaliz Revitalization Fund to bring more help to restaurants, specifically the restaurant in industry. Shuttered Venues Operations Operators Grant is also another program that's being stood up right now that's specific to help things, help people like, say, the 930 Club, Anthem, mm -hmm. If you're a live music venue, because that's also an industry that has been destroyed. Ruth Tam, the city has made it easier for restaurants to create outdoor seating, opening streeteries that Tom Seatsum has grown to love and relaxing rules on sidewalk dining. Is the city consider considering making any of those changes permanent? Uh, I think those programs were really popular and for good reason. You know, there are people who had outdoor seating space and then there are plenty of restaurants who had zero. And so the fact that uh, D.C. was able to collaborate across different uh, agencies, DDOT and, you know, local bids and try to, you know, ease some restrictions to make outdoor dining space possible, I think was really popular among local restaurants. Uh, the city actually polled restaurant owners about these programs and then they released their findings earlier this month. And 89% of local businesses who were operating a street program said that they would support a permanent one. And so in response, the mayor said that she looked forward to, you know, working with the DC council to extend such a program uh, after the public health emergency ends. And I think they even called the, the program something that gives people hope. So I think they realize that it's more than just about uh, funneling business to, um, to these restaurants, but it's about kind of uh, making sure people are, are, are feeling comfortable to eat out like Tom and to enjoy people's company and to, to be a community in. Tom Sitsuma, nevertheless, and in spite of, there have been quite a few restaurants that opened and survived the pandemic. What stood out to you? Well, I think the fact that so many uh, survived, you know, the fact that I was able to do a fall dining guide last year uh, delighted me, tickled me. You know, I, I, I focused on restaurants that I thought were doing a particularly good job of enduring this. You know, it's all about diversification and everything. Um, I'm very optimistic about this. I think, you know, it's a very resilient workforce. Um, people have been very creative. You know, DC was first with, with some of the streeteries and putting mannequins in dining rooms to make them look populated and colorful and welcoming. And, um, you know, I just think we have some real leaders here. The trick is all about diversification. Julie Verratti, you spoke before about the toll that this pandemic has taken on those in the restaurant industry. What would you say to someone who still dreams of opening their own restaurant or bar? Well, I'm I'm very happy to hear that someone like that exists in the world after this last year. Uh, that's number one. Um, one of the things that makes this country so great is 
the spirit of entrepreneurialism. And, you know, I think Tom is right saying, you know, diversification and creativity and just sort of the resilience um, that you need to have. These are all characteristics of entrepreneurs, right? And so if you are passionate about something and you love something, yeah, go for it. I would say throw, throw your hat in there. I would also recommend from a practical standpoint um, to make sure you have access to capital. It's always better to have uh, multiple partners helping you. Um, if you just sort of look at the data, um, the success rate of businesses surviving the first few years, really the number of business partners you have helping you stand it up is a practical point of advice there. But yeah, I, I, I love to hear that. I mean, one of the things that I was, I was afraid of this last year um, stepping back, not, you know, not just for my business owner hat or the fact that I'm, you know, part of the Biden Harris administration now, but just generally speaking, I had a really big fear that the psychological damage of what this pandemic has done beyond the economic damage, beyond the public health damage would kill that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and, you know, luckily Congress has stepped in and this administration has stepped in to bring relief to small businesses, because if the government has, and it's not just on the federal level, states have stepped up, local jurisdictions have stepped up. If that hadn't happened, think, think about that. I, I don't know anyone in their right mind who would look at what happened and see the experience that small businesses have gone through this past year and think, that's a great idea. I'm going to go ahead and do that, right? Um, and so I'm just very excited about the Restaurant Revitalization Fund because I really do think, and Ruth talked a little bit about this, about uh, the grant monies that came in with certain programs that were very specific about how you had to spend that money. Um, and the restaurant industry for a long time throughout this whole pandemic has said, you know, the Triple P program was helpful. And I do think it helped a lot of a lot of businesses but the restaurant industry is kind of its own animal in some ways. And it, it, it was a little too restrictive, which is why the restaurant revitalization fund was enacted so that it was very specific to the industry, which will give a little bit more flexibility in terms of being able to use the money in ways that the, the owner operator knows they need to use it. Michaela. Yes. I have two related questions. Kat asks, do you foresee restaurants continuing to pursue the alternate revenue streams like takeout, delivery, meal kits, cocktails to go that they've developed during the pandemic once things are back to normal? And then Paula in Arlington asks that says that she's really enjoyed going to fancy restaurants that she hasn't been comfortable going to alone and getting takeout from them. So she's wondering, is, is uh, upscale takeout, she calls it, here to stay? Tom Sitsuma. Every chef I've talked to, not just in D.C., but around the country, has told me that takeout is here to stay. They, they told me this early on, and they continue to tell me that. People are so used to this now, and they're used to the creative approaches that, that a lot of restaurants have deployed, too. Like I said earlier, you know, the little notes, the little service aspect, that hospitality aspect uh, that comes into your home now with, with notes and curated lists and things like that. Um, yeah, I expect it to, uh, you know, I, I love the fact that takeout is here to stay. It's sort of opened our world and chefs have gotten good too. They, they, they use this as a chance to um, experiment a little bit too, you know, with some new dishes. They can try it on takeout. If it works, you know, they'll put it on the menu. If it doesn't, they'll, they'll, they'll pull it back. So it works both ways, actually. Ruth Tam, DC was finally on the food map of the country with creative places landing Michelin stars and James Beard awards across the region. Do we know what the restaurant scene will likely look like post-pandemic? Okay, well, I'm going to push back on that framing just a teeny little bit. <laughs> um, I know that awards and lists really matter in a real way for businesses, and I celebrate when D.C. spots are recognized in that way, but I will say that D.C. was definitely on the food map, DC is a food town and we don't necessarily need outside people to confirm that or validate that. Um, but to actually answer your question, um, <laughs> I think the fact is, is that, you know, although there are people who, you know, have lost their jobs and have taken an, a real economic hit, uh, the DC area is full of working professionals with disposable income who dined at the, the Michelin style 
uh, Michelin-starred restaurants pre-pandemic and all these kinds of other places. And, and my guess is that after a year of not being able to do that, people will welcome the opportunity to do that again. And, you know, like a lot of other cities, DC saw some residents leave this area, but the fact is, is that DC is DC, it's the nation's capital. We're never going to be without people who want to dine out. We're never gonna be without tourists. And now that DC, at one point, as you say, like on the food map, um, I think people will be really excited about returning to that and enjoying it once again. Mea culpa indeed, DC is a great dining town. Do you think that will continue, Tom Sitsuma? Absolutely, for all the reasons that uh, Ruth just uh, ticked off there, you know, We've got um, whole new neighborhoods that really didn't exist 10 years ago. You know, people, you know, at one time, a lot of the restaurants were, were congregated. You know, the better known restaurants, at least, were congregated along the corridors of power. And now we have places, Shaw and H Street Northeast and Anacostia. You know, all over, these neighborhoods have, have really blossomed with, with uh, a lot of creative types. And I welcome that. We're, we're seeing a lot of... Um, you know, people of color and women uh, joining the, the talent pool. And I think that's just great cause for celebration. This is the smartest, one of the smartest markets in the country. It's also a very affluent market, you know, um, despite our being a government town and everything. A lot of people have traveled here. You have a lot of people with two, uh, two or more college degrees. Uh, people really know food here. And they're passionate about it. And, and I love that. It keeps everyone on their toes, including food critics. Julie Ferrati, how have restaurants and bars been handling staff layoffs? You talked about your own establishments, but how have others been handling and do you see hope ahead? I do see hope ahead. I think that there are obviously a lot of restaurants that had to lay off and furlough because they couldn't negotiate with their landlord. Their revenues dropped by, you know, more, well more than 50%. Um, which is why I think it's so important that the unemployment um, benefits have been expanded again through the American Rescue Plan, and that has helped support people who were laid off. It's really important that restaurants survive, and I just, I just, I am so adamant about that. They are, they are literally the lifeblood of the communities that we all live in, um, and they bring people together. And I, and I loved hearing uh, Chef Andres talk about how important they were to the community. Uh, and that's why it's so important that we are bringing the relief that we are bringing to people now. Ruth Tam, the Hilton Brothers, who operated some seven bars and clubs in the district, closed all of them last fall, we thought, permanently. But what I'm hearing is that some or all might be reopening. What do we know? I think less than five months after uh, the Hilton Brothers closed their D.C. bars, they have announced that many of these places are coming back. First of all, El Rey, a, a taco bar on U Street, never actually closed because the neighborhood was like, no, like we won't allow it. We need tacos to survive this pandemic. Um, so uh, in addition to El Rey opening, uh, you know, all the, the beloved places that have become part of DC's nightlife fabric, uh, many of them are coming back. Um, some of them are in a, a, new, a, a new capacity. Uh, Echo Park is already back serving pizza. Um, the Swanky Cocktail Bar, the Gibson is coming back, but uh, I think in a new location, though that hasn't been announced yet, the location. Um, Players Club will return. Tate, uh, the date is to be determined. Um, the Brixton is coming back on U Street, but instead of a nightclub, it'll be more of a pub. And uh, the only holdout so far of the seven bars that uh, were previously closed is, is Marvin, which was my personal favorite of the bunch. Uh, that's on 14th and U, or was on 14th and U, and I eagerly await news about that. You've been especially interested in what these seismic shifts in the restaurant industry mean from a labor standpoint. Who have you been talking to and what have you been hearing so far? I'm really interested in how companies that are related to the restaurant industry, like third-party delivery apps and career services, how they're influencing all the changes that are happening right now. And if it's, as they say, to the benefit of restaurants and their, their survival or to the conditions that, that workers have access to, um, my co-host of the podcast, Patrick and I, uh, we've been talking to people who are delivering food during this time, who are responsible for their own PPE and safety. Uh, we're talking to people who study technology and labor and how it affects the restaurant and food uh, systems that we, we know and love. Um, a lot of them are coming from a place of skepticism that these changes are happening um, that are that are gonna be beneficial for, for workers, um, but we remain uh, you know, in reporting and, and we're working on several new episodes. So. Stay tuned about that. 
Tom Zitzema, how do you feel, and I'd like to put this question to Julie Verratti too, how do you feel about restaurants reopening, particularly in a state like Maryland that is planning to operate at full capacity? First you, Tom Zitzema. It makes me a little nervous right now. I think until more people are vaccinated, uh, you know, I, I, I don't encourage that. You know, I, I want to be as much of a cheerleader and a supporter as I can. Um, but I think we have to be a little wary of that. And we can still continue to support restaurants by by takeout and, and you know, gift certificates and merchandise and all of that. Um, I would not encourage people right now to eat in a crowded dining room or a dining room at full capacity. Even if you've been vaccinated, you know, you're putting the help at risk too if, if, if they haven't been vaccinated and you, and you don't know the status of the other people around you. So um, I'm very cautious when it comes to that. Julie Verratti. I agree with Tom on this. You know, I like him. I'm also a uh, Dr. Fauci fan um, and sort of listening to his guidance. Uh, it, and it's true. I mean, if you look at sort of the way vaccines have been distributed locally, you know, restaurant workers are not necessarily at, at, at the list of where they're eligible to get the vaccine at this point. I know that D.C. just opened that up in, in the city. But, um, yeah, I agree with Tom. And, uh, Michaela, we have one lo- last short question, don't we? Yes, we do. Matthew from Alexandria wants to know, what dish do each of you miss the most? And for him, it's mussels and fries that come to mind. Ruth Tam? I haven't had hot pot, pot or dim sum in this entire pandemic, so I'm dying for that. <laughs> Julie Verratti. I'm always a sucker for a really delicious greasy cheeseburger and a nice cold draft beer at a bar. And you, Tom Sitsuma. Oh, anything Korean. I, I, I miss those some of those buffets, to be honest with you. And I'm fingers crossed on that. Same here. And I'm afraid that's about all the time we have. Thank you all for joining us. Ruth Tam, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Kojo. Tom Sitsuma, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Julie Verratti, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And folks can go to sba.gov forward slash coronavirus relief to find help. Today's show on Washington's restaurant scene with special guest Jose Andres was produced by Julie Duppenbrock. Coming up tomorrow, the House Oversight Committee is holding a hearing on the D.C. Statehood Bill Monday. We'll hear from Megan Hatcher-Mays, the Director of Democracy Policy at Indivisible, about why the group has made statehood a priority. Then, Prince George's County Executive Angela Also Brooks joins us to talk about easing COVID restrictions in Maryland. That all starts tomorrow at noon on the Politics Hour. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Namdi. Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.